Tuesday. It's a big band Tuesday here on the Halford and Brush Show on Sportsnet 650. The dogs are bobbing their heads in the background. Sounds like a 70s sitcom. Jamie Dodd is yeah. theme, theme tapping music. his foot along here. By the way, it's the Halford and Brush Show featuring Jamie Dodd. That's right. The guy from Canucks Talk. Wow. In the mornings. It's been a good hour so far. We are in hour two of the program. JP Acosta from SB Nation, who is probably wondering what he just signed up for, having heard this music, is going to join us in just a moment. We're just here. in a happy mood because Bruff's not here. It's true. We're jolly. It is a happy time. Uh, hour two of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. This entire show, this entire operation is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Finally, Jamie, can you tell everybody about Kintec Footwear oh, and Orthotics? Boy, I sure can. We are coming live, coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Time for a little NFL talk here on the station. Joining us now, as mentioned, J.P. Acosta from SB Nation, NFL writer here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, J.P. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming back on. We appreciate it, bud. Uh, so let's talk about the most recent result, last night's Monday Night Football game between the Denver Broncos and the Buffalo Bills. Dramatic fashion, Broncos win. It's their third win in a row. Dramatic fashion, Bills lose. Drops them to 5-5 five and five on the year. Is it fair to suggest, JP, that Buffalo's Super Bowl window has closed? I think that's absolutely fair. When you consider how this Bills team is built and what they've done throughout this season and even before this season, it feels like their window's quickly closing. I think when you look at the roster construction, outside of Stephon Diggs, they do not have a true second receiver. Dalton Kincaid is their most reliable second receiving option, and he's a rookie tight end. So you're going to have those struggles when a rookie is your second-best receiving target. Defensively, even before the injury, they were still felt like a very top-heavy unit that was leaning a lot on aging superstars. They were leaning a lot on an aging Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. They are leaning on an aging Vaughn Miller. And those guys just haven't lived up to snuff or have been injured. So then you call into question the roster construction and the depth. And that's even before we get to the actual play on the field, where it feels like the offense is consistently moving the ball, but it feels like Josh Allen has almost sort of reverted back to the really high turnover, the high variance Josh Allen we saw before Brian Dayball and Stephon Diggs got to the Bills. It just feels like everything has kind of come to a head at this year where the roster construction is finally catching back up. And I think Ken Dorsey's done a good job in terms of scheming and play calling, but it's the biggest thing for the Bills and Josh Allen is getting him to temper the good the good Josh Allen with the wacky Josh Allen crazy interceptions. Like you have to temper that a little bit. You can't always try and throw the ball over that corner. Like sometimes you just gotta throw the check down. How do they go about doing that? Because as you said, there's been times in the past seasons where, I mean, he's looked like, you know, the second best quarterback in the league and a, and a guy that you feel really, really good about. And then there's been times this season where it's been completely unpredictable. How do they get him to be maybe not always good Josh Allen, but at least a lot more consistently good Josh Allen than he has been this year? I think part of it is that's just who, that's what you sign up for when you have Josh Allen as a quarterback. You have a guy 
who is unafraid of throwing any pass on earth. That's going to reflect in his play on the field. He thinks he can make that throw. Sometimes he doesn't, but the once, but the times that it works, the offense is flying high. I feel like you have to kind of take the good with the bad of Josh Allen, but I feel like Ken Dorsey and the Bills brain trust can kind of do a better job of saying like, hey, Josh, we don't need this play right now. We don't need, we don't need to get it all back at this point. You can take the four yards. You can take the three-yard check down. We will continue to move the ball. You don't have to try and make this play. Now, of course, there are times where, like, the first interception yesterday, it was right off of Gabe Davis's hands. But the second one was really bad. That was a – he tried to throw the out route, and the corner was reading it the entire way. That is a moment where you throw the check down. So it's just those moments where you're like, hey, this is the Josh Allen experience. This is what you sign up for when you draft Josh Allen. He's going to make those throws, but he's also going to – continue to be aggressive down the field and get you the fireworks that we associate with Josh Allen. And just the bills need to do a better job of telling him in situations like, Hey, you don't need to throw this. Uh, let's stick in the AFC East and go right to the bottom of it. So at two and eight, the once proud new England Patriots now have not just the worst record in the division. They have the worst record in the entire AFC. What comes next for this team? And I think JP, more importantly, what comes next for Bill Belichick? So I've actually been thinking about this a lot when it comes to the Patriots, the future of Bill Belichick specifically. I uh-huh. don't know if they fire him. I don't think they fire him. You can't fire Bill Belichick. That is the most tenured coach in football, one of, if not the best coach in modern football history. It's just, it's really hard to justify keeping him around when he is both the GM and the head coach. He is. Bill Belichick, the GM, has hamstrung the coach. And you can tell in their decision-making on offense, in their talent acquisition on offense, starting with Mac Jones. I think that last Sunday in Germany, throwing the interception, that was the last time we've seen Mac Jones as the starting quarterback of the Patriots. You cannot go out there with the game on the line and throw that interception. It was the worst interception I've seen any quarterback throw. But the problem is Bailey Zappi isn't much better. Mm. In fact, I think Bailey Zappi is worse. <laughs> yeah. So you're really stuck. But out, even outside of that, they don't have more consistent receiving options. The offensive line is often injured. It's just poor talent acquisition on that side of the ball. And that falls back on your GM, and that's also Bill Belichick. So I think when it comes to the end of the season, and they are firmly out of the playoff picture, regular season's over, I think we get – a Bill Belichick steps down, but I don't think Bill Belichick's going to get fired. I think this is a, we're going to let him walk off gracefully if he chooses to, but you cannot continue to let, the Patriots need to rebuild Bill, but I don't think Bill Belichick's going to be the guy to be able to be, be around for that. One of the uh, big surprises this year, or at least uh, surprise might be too strong, but just pleasant performances. Uh, CJ Stroud in his rookie year has been absolutely incredible for the Houston Texans. And then you look at Bryce Young on the other side with the Panthers, and it's been a really, really tough go. How, how are we going to look at this one in a few years? Is this going to be one of the biggest draft misses for the Panthers at the top of the draft, given Young's performance and what Stroud is doing right now for the Texans? So, for Panthers fans and Bryce Young, I think the thing is just to give it time. I think 
this is, this has been a nightmare year for the Panthers, not only in terms of their quarterback, but quarterback has been affected by all of the negative things around him. Multiple play callers. You don't have any consistent receiving weapons. It's just, it's really bad. And it's also forced. It's also bringing out the negative traits in Bryce Young. Bryce Young is not a quarterback who can, who can make things right athletically. He's, he's an athletically limited quarterback. What you understood, you understood going in, he's, 5'10", 204 pounds, and he doesn't have a super elite arm or is a great athlete like Kyler Murray or Russell Wilson was. He has to win with his mind, and that's something that doesn't come as a rookie. So it's going to take a little bit of time. But on the other side of that, D.J. Stroud has been making things right for the Texans. Of course, the Texans have a better core around him. The Texans' offensive line does not get enough credit for how good they've played, but he has been every bit of what we thought he would be in terms of a professional thrower of the football. He is so good with ball placement, with timing, with leverage. He's able to do stuff out of structure that thing that player people thought he couldn't do coming out of Ohio state. And then you also have the moments you have the comebacks against the bucks and the Bengals. Those type of moments where you're like, Oh, this dude is a real deal. You can make the case that he is a top 10 quarterback in the NFL right now. And that's really got to sting a little bit for Panthers fans because what C.J. Stroud is doing is he is making things right when things don't go perfectly all the time in Houston. He has the athletic ability to make things right, and that's something that Bryce Young just doesn't have. So I would give – I think Panthers fans have a little bit more patience but also just understand the limitations of their quarterback. We're speaking to J.P. Acosta from SB Nation, NFL writer here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Okay, J.P., the Ravens are 7-3. and three. The Steelers and the Browns are 6-3. and three. The Bengals are 5-4 and four after losing to Stroud and the Texans on Sunday. With that picture set, do you think all four of those AFC North teams are going to reach the playoffs this year? So, I don't think so. I don't think there's ever been a year where all the teams in a division make the playoffs. It's going to be really tough for all four of those teams to get in, mainly because they still have to play each other. They still have to go through that battling, that Mad Max Fury Road that is the AFC North. Like you, like this week, they each, they each play each other. It's going to be really difficult for all of them to make it without help from outside of the division. Like you would need to have the Bills completely falling off the face, the face of the earth. You need, you know, you need the Jets to just completely fall off you need the chargers and i guess now the raiders who are at 500 you need those teams to suddenly collapse just to even get four just even get the final two teams into the wild card conversation so they might get three as it stands right now they have three but i don't know if they get all four just because of how tough the asc is that division is going to be under the spotlight on Thursday night. Thursday night football is the 5-4 and four Bengals and Joe Burrow going to the 7-3 and three Baltimore Ravens on Thursday night football. That should be a good one. Hey, JP, thanks a lot for doing this today, bud. We really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy Thursday night football and all the games this week. We'll do this again soon. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. That's JP Acosta, NFL writer from SB Nation here on the Halford and Bruff Show featuring Jamie Dodd on Sportsnet 650. Thursday night football will be tantalizing, but prior to Thursday night football, we have a big Wednesday night right here in Vancouver with the return of Bo Horvat. We've spoken about everything regarding Bo, the trade, 
his season thus far, his captaincy, his legacy, and now we have to dive into the quote. Laddie, <laughs> do you have it at the ready? We've got this is it's funny. So when you were looking up the Bo Horvat audio, you actually had a Google autofill, is that correct? Yeah, I typed in Bo Horvat to type in the clip, and one of the autocompletes was Bo Horvat tell you that for free was one of the autocompletes. So people have been looking up this clip quite often. It's part so, of his yeah, brand now. It is, right? And for better or for worse, you do have to own the things that you say, especially as a professional athlete, especially when you played in a market like Vancouver. And for as long as he did, I'm sure he knew that those comments that he said were going to come back. For the record, just to clarify, let's hear exactly what the man said uh, shortly after his trade to the Islanders. Take it away, Laddie. How does this rank for you in playoff pushes, the excitement of this building and the fans' involvement over the last couple of games? Yeah, I mean, it's been unbelievable. It's a lot better than Vancouver, I'll tell you that for free. Thanks, Bo. Thank you. Guys. <laughs> and the chuckle at the end. Of everyone, okay, yeah, okay, he said it. He did it. How much? I'll tell you that for free. How much did I'll tell you that for free change his legacy, if at all? I mean, it definitely did because we're having this debate about is he going to get booed? Should you boo Bo Horvat? If he never says that, what's the case for booing him? You know what I mean? None. Like, there's zero. There's, there's literally zero case for booing you him would have to if be, that quote doesn't exist. You would have to be the pettiest person on <laughs> earth, which many of you would. texting into the Dunbar number text line are. But, yeah, you're right. Like, Because it's not like normally when a player leaves and there's this bad blood. Like, think about Ryan Kessler, right? It's like, did he hamstring the team? Did he screw them over by, you know, exercising his no-trade clause? Or Luongo with the my contract sucks, right? It's like, did normally it's because their departure hurt the team in some way. Or you think their departure departure hurt the team in some way but people texted him Muskoka Mike texted him like why boo him we won the trade you know I don't think anyone is sitting here like oh man he really screwed us on his way out they used the assets to go get Philip Ronick. they couldn't sign him they didn't have the cap space that the writing was on the wall the only argument to boo Bo Horvat is if you were really really offended by him saying I'll tell you that for free so that's it I will say that over the weekend Horvat began the healing process. He, he walked it back to a certain degree, and he addressed the remarks. And look, I mean, that's a rite of passage that anyone that scorns this fan base has to go through. Ryan Kessler had to, <laughs> Ryan Kessler had to go through it. Yep. Right? He had to go through the walk of shame with people throwing tomatoes at him. Like, that's just how it goes in Vancouver. I don't necessarily love it. In the case of Kessler, I did. I thought that was great. But in this particular instance, I don't love it. But I... Uh, I respect it, and I understand that a passionate fan base sometimes is going to lean in one direction or another quite aggressively. Sometimes the reaction will be overboard. Sometimes passion and emotion will overcome and will rule the day. Here's what Horvat said to Andrew Gross of Newsday. Quote. I'll tell you that for free. Oh, God. <laughs> While your timing is impeccable. It's thrown me off big time here. Bo did not say that. Sorry, Bo, carry on, carry Bo on. Bo will never utter the words, I'll tell you that for free again for the rest of his life because I don't think that that was anything that he anticipated being his tagline, but it is now. So anyway, here's what Horvat said to Newsday. I think the Vancouver fans were pretty upset with what I said last year. I think they took it more personal than I wanted them to take it. It wasn't directed at them. I was just more upset of how everything went down last year. When I heard him say it the first time, that was my first reaction. There's a guy who had a lousy last few months in a city that, for the most part, he grew to really enjoy. 
and appreciated living here. But the exit was not pleasant because the team was horrible on the ice. He was the leader of it. He had obviously been made priority E, F, or G Mm -hmm. on the list of things to do. And he knew that his time was up. And when he got to New York, it was good feelings and good vibes. And I believe that that game where he did his walk-off interview, they won. So he was feeling better. That was the end of it. But unfortunately for him, and according to our Dunbar Lumber text message gym basket, a lot of people have not forgotten. Adog, you're a tried and true ardent Canucks fan. Where are you in this whole thing? Uh, Yeah, I'm with you, man. I I agree with Halford. I wouldn't boo him. He did the best that he could in his time in Vancouver with what he was given. He was as good of a captain as he could have been under the situation, and he scored a bunch of goals for the team. He was their best player many times. I feel like many times, ge- many times, many games. Yeah. He was the best player on the ice for the Canucks. So I mean, yeah, I just no, I wouldn't boo him based on that one silly comment. Like as I feel Amy like it said, cheapens the boos. Honestly, I feel like it yeah. makes booing someone less powerful and less. He didn't really do anything outside of that one comment. Yeah. I mean, as Jamie said, like five, ten years from now, we're not even going <laughs> to remember and it. what he didn't do. <laughs> and that's what it <laughs> Well, sure, but but I think the it just out, seems so silly. Listening to the clip again, and this is what I thought at the time too. The out is that and now the question's a little muddled, but she first starts about asking him about playoff pushes. And in that context, I think clearly what he's saying is, yeah, playing for a team that's desperately trying to make the playoffs, that's like in the playoff race, has a legitimate chance at it, is better than a team that's out of the race by October, by the end of October. Like, that's ultimately what he's saying. And somebody texted in here, any legit Canucks fan would agree that the past decade sucked. I'll tell you that for free. And I mean, that's I don't think he was saying like, oh, yeah, I hated the fans in Vancouver. He was saying, yeah, it's nice to be in a team that's got a legitimate shot at the playoffs, which I think a lot of Canucks fans would agree. Wouldn't there be some embarrassment, though, that you were the captain of those teams like why would you make a joke about that when you were the guy leading those teams that you're making fun of now that were out of it like you That's said by December he's supposed to pretend that it's just there was just as fun doing death marches in Vancouver as it is I don't know playing if you get to trot out there going for the playoffs you don't get to take a victory lap when you were the guy at the head of the lineup during those years it's That's, not a victory lap weird to me it's not now, a victory lap this is an interesting conversation to have because you do bring up a point that wh- when you're the captain, sometimes there's responsibilities and things that are foisted upon you that are, one, out of your control, and two, things that you have to shoulder that it just comes with the territory. It might be fair or not, but I don't think an NHL captaincy is a fair job to begin with. You are responsible for a lot more than is what's under your control. Yeah, but the way the team played isn't his fault. And he the way the team he- was constructed wasn't his no. fault either. At the same time... And he was often the best player. At the same time, his legacy is going to be defined as kind of being a meh captain. Well, yeah. And that's, yeah. like I said, that's, the most appro- if we want to really go meta, the most appropriate response you can have on Wednesday night at Rogers Arena is a polite, polite clap. golf clap. Yeah, you are saying yesterday, yeah. <laughs> and that, and that, a nice little nod. He's going to yeah. be identified with a frustrating era of Vancouver hockey, and he yes, has to wear that. That's absolutely. fine. Like, he did not single-handedly, and it, it, again, I don't think he was the problem. I think this idea that, like, Bo Horvat was the one holding back the development of a good team culture, I don't buy that. That's not but, fair. But again, he was he part of the solution? No. And that's fair to acknowledge. That doesn't mean he's a villain. That doesn't mean you have to boo him. It's just, yeah, he didn't turn the team around. It's not like Mark Messier here, right? Like, it's a completely different. No, 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 but not at that It makes you say, hold on, wait a minute, when a guy like that goes elsewhere and then starts taking shots, though, right? Like, it's, it does make you pause for a second when you're like, hold on. I felt that part of that. I felt that the end of his tenure allowed him to be a little disgruntled at the very least, right? Because the way that it played out 
wasn't great mm-hmm. and not really befitting of a cat. If we're going to have these conversations about the NHL and the sanctity and the sacredness of the captaincy and how much it means and what it means, not just in the room, but to the market and everyone else, then the way that it ended for him here, that's a tough one. Like how many captains who are leading the team in goal scoring get traded at the deadline, right? With, you know, looming free agency on the horizon. Like it just doesn't happen all that often, but his captaincy, you got to also remember too, is he came in being sort of groomed for it by the Sedins mm-hmm. and coming in on the heels of one of the most respected and beloved leadership groups of all time. So in that regard, he was always going to be uh, a captain that was chasing the ghosts of the past regime and was never going to live up to it. No. It didn't matter what he did. Short of winning a Stanley Cup, he was always going to fall short of the previous captain. And that's a tough thing, right? I mean, God, Quinn Hughes comes in. He's like, this is an awesome one to inherit, right? The bar was relatively low. So it's all about the previous <laughs> regime and what they've done and then who you're inheriting it from. He'll tell you that for free. And, and oh, I also God. think you just can't separate those comments specifically, but Bo Horvat's entire tenure from the chaos and the frustration of the Jim Betting regime, right? Like that's all ultimately what he's talking about man it was really really tough and are there any Canucks fans that disagree with that that disagree that the end of the betting era was really really tough and chaotic and not particularly fun and Bo Horvat's acknowledging it now that doesn't mean you have to think he's a great captain but come on like we know what he's talking about here it was not fun the Canucks experience was not fun before Bo Horvat left Uh, I like that in the notes and by the way Jamie does exemplary prep work here just to get ready Oh, yeah. this, this three three hour odyssey in the morning. Uh, it's kind of wild when you step back and look at Horvat's place in Canucks history. Tenth in scoring, eighth in goals. All the guys with more goals scored than him are either got their numbers in the rafters yeah, or, or in the ring of honor. honor. And I'm, I mean, I don't even look. I'm not prepared to start um, a debate on where Bo should land because the ring of honor slash retired jersey thing. It's too far down the road, and it's too messy and too chaotic to do right now. Right now, I can only stomach whether or not he's going to get booed and what his legacy is now that he's got his first tour back. But when you look at his body of work, if you're able to take that historical step back and look at it within the context of the organization, there's not a lot of guys that have done as much on the ice as Horvat did during the near decade that he was here from draft to trade, right? And if you talk about significant uh, hallmark moments within the last decade or so. The trade of Corey Schneider, who, by the way, we're going to have on the show tomorrow. Is that correct? We are, yes. Yeah, he's now working as an analyst for MSG, correct? Uh, yeah, an NHL network, yeah. Okay, so the trade where Schneider went to, and I was on the draft floor in New Jersey when it happened, that was a profound moment. Yep. That was a big moment in the franchise's history. Being named one of the handful of captains in Canucks history, that is a big moment. Um, you know, we just kind of belittled what the bubble meant across the NHL, but the performance that Horvat put forth in the bubble was one of the better individual efforts that we've seen in the playoffs from a Canuck over the last decade. So there's a lot there, and there's a lot of statistical merit and moments in a dark time that he should be celebrated for, but it's just not that simple. It's really complex. Speaking of complexities, the Edmonton Oilers, Connor McDavid, is he in charge? We're going to find out next. Mark Spector from Edmonton is going to join us. Uh, Speck wrote 
the piece that you all need to go read. Check it out at sportsnet.ca. Not just about the coaching change in Edmonton, but the perceived role that Connor McDavid played in it and how Connor McDavid is reacting to those perceptions. That's all coming up next. Stick around, won't you? It's the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. It's a lot better than Vancouver. I'll tell you that for free. Talking all Canucks all the time. It's Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He never lost the room. Never lost the room, I didn't think. Um, never lost the room, so, um, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. Seven, <laughs> the wordsmith, Connor McDavid. <laughs> Just kept saying. I don't know what happened, but he definitely he didn't lose the room. What's the opposite of not losing the room? Is it keeping the room? Winning the room? Winning the room. 7.32 on a Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd in for the vacationing Jason Bruff. Big Band Tuesday. We're really bringing it with the upbeat music today. Uh, Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer. Today we are in hour two of the program. Hour two is brought to you by Everything Financial. Sorry, it's not. It's brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. So it's been an interesting last, well, start to the season, but last couple weeks specifically in Edmonton, uh, to the point where I feel like we've called on Mark Spector quite regularly here on the Halford and Bruff Show. We've done it again this morning. I want to thank him as he joins us now for joining us yet again. So one, good morning, Spec, and two, thank you once again for joining us here on the Halford and Bruff Show. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. I awake in Edmonton, hoping the call comes from that 604 area every day. <laughs> well, here we are. As promised, we deliver. There's a lot to unpack here, Spec. Uh, I read your article on sportsnet.ca. I encouraged a lot of our listeners to go read it as well, because there's a lot of nuance here beyond just your standard fair coaching change. Connor McDavid and the role that he's playing here. So first, what did McDavid have to say about all this talk that he has his say on who fills the front office and who fills the coach's office from his position as the face and center of this franchise? Yeah, he didn't certainly go on to length about it. He had about one sentence that he threw out there. He said, I know what the narrative is, and it couldn't be further from the truth. And that was it. But knowing McDavid as I do, that's... You know, I mean, the Coles notes is this. The Edmonton Oilers organization lives in absolute terror of the unspeakable, which is that right. one day Connor McDavid's contract's going to expire and he's not going to want to stay here anymore. So their attempt to switch that has been to surround him with his people, Jeff Jackson, uh, now uh, Chris Knobloch, you know, Connor Brown, and I'm here to tell you, as a guy that covers his team very closely, this is what the Oilers are doing. They think it's for Connor McDavid, but in fact, it's happened to Connor McDavid because now the the best analogy I can make, guys, is the accusations out there that he's like Mark Messier in Vancouver, you know, playing playing uh, GM from down on the bench. 
Well, yeah, it almost puts him in an awkward position, right? If he wasn't instrumental in it, everyone's going <laughs> to think he was because it's it's yeah. the guys that are related to him. And does it almost illustrate the danger of trying so desperately to cater to one player? Because now you've put him in a bit of an awkward position. And ultimately, I don't think it's you know unfair to say, Spec, what's going to convince Connor McDavid to stay in Edmonton is if he thinks he can win there, right? Like that's the most important yeah. thing more than bringing in his former, uh, his former junior coach who could be a great coach. It's just, it's an interesting way to go about it. Well, listen, each move by themselves, you can totally uh, justify. You know, the Oilers are losing their G- they, their GM and their president were in the last year of the contract this year, Nicholson and Holland. They needed to bring in a new president because they need a succession plan. I get that. They pick Jeff Jackson. I think that's kind of a forward-thinking pick, right? He's a mega agent. He knows the business. I can live with that. You know, they needed badly a right winger, and they, they were cap-strapped. So they got Connor Brown on a deal where they're basically paying him out of next year's bonus overages. In and of itself, you know, assuming the guy gets it together and plays good, that's a pretty smart contract. I don't mind that. And now you need a new head coach. Jeff Jackson's had a whole bunch of clients that played for Erie and in Hartford, and he knows this coach really well. He's the coach the guy hires. In and of itself, sure, hire Chris Knobloch. But you pack them all together. And all those guys have direct links to Connor McDavid, and we are where we're at. So I'm just here to tell you, you're right. The way to keep Connor McDavid is to buy, is by winning, absolutely for sure. And if you're sitting up there in the coast or wherever thinking McDavid's on the phone making all these hires, you're sorely mistaken because he's not. I don't think anyone was caught off guard necessarily by the fact that there was a coaching change. I mean, we had you on the show last week, and the the, the winds were blowing that direction. I do think that some were caught off guard by the fact that it's Chris Knobloch who gets the job. So just in a general sense of where this came from and how off guard people were caught, what was your reaction when you heard about this? That Not necessarily that Woodcroft was out, but it was this guy that was going to be the new head, head coach. Well, I'm not uh, 100% surprised. He's, um, he's He has a long history with the guy that made the hire. That's that's Jeff Jackson. You know, just so we're clear on this, I think Ken Holland had almost nothing to do with any of this. I don't think Ken Holland would have fired Jay Woodcroft. I don't think Ken Holland would have hired Chris Knobloch. I think there's other guys in his wheelhouse he would have hired. But Ken Holland's an outgoing GM, and I believe that Jeff Jackson, the president, has made the decision, I'm not going to let an outgoing GM shape my team for the future when he's not here anymore. And frankly, is anyone going to argue with that? I think that's probably wise. So I, I'm not completely surprised. I mean, the, the Knobloch's got a history in Edmonton. He's been in the minors a long time. He was an effective junior coach. It's his time. Let's see. Is it going to work? You know? I'll tell you if it's a good idea about a year from now, guys. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> uh, how much does Connor McDavid detest either the notion or the idea that he should be treated any differently than his teammates? Yeah, I know this. You know, there's going to be people that say, ah, Spectre, you're too close to this guy, or you're an Oilers fan, which if anyone reads me, they know that's not true. Um <laughs> But I'm here to tell you. I'll, let me tell you a little story. I wrote a column sure, on sure. this. It's on sportsed.ca that, that explains it all. But let me tell you a little story. Uh, the last time there was a Winter Olympics, and we all thought that the, the NHLers still might go there, 
Connor McDavid skated with Sid Crosby at, uh, I believe that it was at uh, Gary Roberts' camp in the summer. Okay. And I was told that McDavid set it up or, or requested that he could play on a line with Sid because, of course, he's never been able to because they've screwed it up so badly with the international hockey. So at training camp, I got Connor on the side, and I said, hey, I hear you were skating with Sid, and I thought that'd be a pretty cool story, right? He told me, I am not talking about that. And the reason he wasn't talking about it was because he didn't want it out there that he was manipulating lines for an upcoming Olympics, that he was hinting at the coach who he should play with. He's a guy that, listen, he knows he's the best player on every team he plays on. He's Connor McDavid. Mm. But he doesn't act like it, and he doesn't want to be treated like it. And I'm here to tell you, he is not firing coaches and hiring presidents here in Edmonton. Uh, he wants to be... You know, he, he's the superstar that wants to be treated like a regular guy. I know he never gets treated like a regular guy. I get all that. Mm. But he is not an elitist type of guy. He doesn't want to be that person. And so far, he hasn't been in all the years I've known him here in Edmonton. Uh, we're speaking to Mark Spector from Sportsnet in Edmonton here on the Halford and Bruff Show featuring Jamie Dodd on Sportsnet 650. Uh, what are some of the things that Chris Knobloch is going to do differently than Jay Woodcroft? Ah, it's a good question. It's, and, you know, when you get a coach who comes in halfway through an NHL season, the, 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 the changing of any system is so incremental because of there's, there's no practice time, right? They got a practice today. He's going to put a layer down on their defensive coverage. I'm not sure what it's going to be. I don't consider myself a cover the game for a long time, but I'm not a coach. So he's going to, whatever his changes are, he said he wants to stick with his own defense, but I think it's going to be a little bit different. I think he wants to change up his forecheck a little bit. What's that going to be? Guys, you know, go phone for your next guest, some guy who's coached 20 years in the league, and he can explain it to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, Spec, how does Paul Coffey figure into all of this? An interesting situation, right, with a special advisor to the owner and now joining the bench as an assistant coach and obviously a team, an NHL legend. What's his role? What does this tell us about where the Oilers are going and the dynamics in the organization? Question. I, don't, I never like as an Edmonton guy and a guy that's covered this team, I never like the old oiler dynamic in this organization. I've written many times. They got to get past the eighties here. Like, Holy cow. Um, but he, you know, on, I guess on the other hand, I'd say to you that you're bringing in the head coach and they fired an assistant. They fired Dave Manson, uh, who ran the defense and Paul Coffey's already on the team and working for the team. And here he is in town. So, I think it's a temporary thing. I don't think he'll be the an assistant coach for more than I don't think he will be till the end of the season. They said he would be. I'm not sure that'll happen. Uh, so I don't love the optics of it. I don't love the fact that you know that he's been working for Daryl Cates and now he's behind the bench. I don't like that much. That tells me that you know is he a window to the owner? I hope not. Let's say that. I hope not. Uh, and I think the last thing that has to be said is. You know, I, I know the history of great players who weren't very good coaches, okay? I know about Rocket Richard. I know about Wayne Gretzky, you know? They're not all Rick Tockett, right? right. There's very few Rick Tockets who are really good players and look to be really good coaches. But I'm also going to tell you, Paul Coffey probably knows something about playing defense. He knows something about about a team that's trying to figure out how to, how to act and, 
and play like a you know their version of a champion. He knows a little bit about that. He knows a little bit about swagger, and that's what this team needs. So I'm not throwing it in the dustbin, as it were. Let's see what happens. Uh, I think in the end, it won't be an experiment that lasts a really long time. Uh, so at four, nine, and one, the Oilers have nine points on the season, and they did get a win last night against the Islanders. And before we let you go, I do want to ask one quick question about the Islanders. But we just had Greg Wyshynski on the show, and he pointed out that. You know, for as bad as this start has been, they're still only six points back of that final wild card spot. So how much belief is there in Edmonton that this thing is going to get turned around and they are going to be a playoff team? Oh, still tons. Still tons. Right? Lots of belief. Certainly within the team and even in the city. Uh, you know, we also believe that if they didn't win a couple games here, they, it was going to go the other direction. And they have won a couple games and they're starting to play a structured game. But you know what? If you get to, what did you say they are out right now? Six out? They're six points back at St. Louis for the final spot. And they got, okay. yeah, and, and St. Louis, for so, what it matters, St. Louis has a game in hand, but whatever. Okay, American Thanksgiving's on, I think, the 23rd. So if you can get that to four points or three by the 23rd, now you're, you're not, you know, anyone who's within three points by the 23rd, it's still realistic. Uh, you know, I'm going to say to you, take a look down their roster and tell me that's not a playoff team. Right. You know, I'm not telling you they're going to win a Stanley Cup. I'm not saying they're the best team ever. And I am telling you right now, Vancouver's way better. But in the end, if you look at their players one by one, it's a playoff team, guys. They've got good players. Mm-hmm. So they'll make some tweaks. They'll figure some stuff out. I think they'll make the playoffs. I'm, I'm here to tell you, first place, the Pacific's long gone. So second and probably third. But uh, I guess the other side of that coin is if they do get in as a wild card team, that means they'll have played mighty good hockey. Yeah. And there's going to be a bunch of teams that say, hmm, I'd rather not play that team in the first round. Uh, real quick before we let you go, the Islanders come in last night, 4-1 losers. It's their fifth loss in a row. What did you see from the Islanders last night? Or more specifically, what didn't you see? Well, you know what I didn't see? I saw a hockey game that was 1-1 through two periods. The Islanders were better. And they didn't convert. Right. They were the better team in that in the game, and it was only one one. And I thought to myself, I've seen this movie with Edmonton. Remember that game they outshot the Canucks like forty two to eighteen and lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they looked like. And then the third period came along, and they made a couple of stupid mistakes. Uh, penalty two hundred feet from their net, and they shot one over the glass. Edmonton scores two power play goals. It's game over. So they're a team that that's going through it. I don't know how good they are. I'm really, I don't think they're that good. They've got good defense and a good goalie, but they got nothing up front. Um, eh, they're all right, but I, I wouldn't be going to Vegas and betting the Islanders to win a bunch of playoff rounds this year, boys. Spec, you're the best. Thanks for doing this. As always, we really appreciate it. I promise we won't call for the rest of the week, okay? Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. Just wait till you get my invoice before you make the next phone call, okay? I'm forwarding it to the bosses as we speak. Thanks, Spec. Uh, Mark Spector from Sportsnet in Edmonton here on the Halford and Bruff Show featuring Jamie Dodd on Sportsnet 650. So the Islanders come into town with Bo Horvat. I mean, the book on the Islanders, sadly, I think for them, is the exact same one that we've read for the last couple of years, is that they're committed to a group of good, not great players. They don't have the offensive capabilities. That's rearing its ugly head right now because they have six goals 
in their last four games. Not coincidentally, all four of those games are losses. They just don't have the offensive weapons to go out and compete in a league that is continuously getting better and more skillful and more productive offensively. And as uh, as Balak brought up, similarities between the Islanders and recent additions of the Canucks, one of them is huge reliance on their goalie. And they have a great one in Ilya Sorokin, but you look at it this year, 907 save percentage in his first nine games, right? So if you want to talk about what's going wrong with the Islanders, like typically it's going to be if Sorokin is playing really well, they're going to win a bunch of games. They're going to have a chance to win in the playoffs. If he's not, they're going to be a deeply, deeply flawed team, and that's what you're seeing right now. They're go- they're alternating back and forth between Varlamov and Sorokin. Did you? Or were you aware of this dynamic? Yeah, well, Varlamov's, uh, Woodley mentioned it in his hit yesterday. He's having an incredible season, so I think they're just kind of rolling with the hot hand, and Varlamov's been you know, fighting his young legs, apparently, because he's not, like, what, 36, 37? It's not now. a good spot for the Islanders to be in, though, if you're not fully confident in Sorokin as your number one. Like, it reminds me of when, before Thatcher Demko got injured last year, right? And people were, Bruce Boudreaux was rotating starts with him and Spencer Martin. It's yeah. like, well, that's great. Spencer Martin's playing well. That's not a good sign, though, if your yeah, franchise right. goalie is not getting in on a on a more regular basis than that. I think it'll even out over time. I think Sorokin will get there eventually. I think he's, what do you say, 908 at this point? Like, yeah. that's not horrible. I think he'll eventually pick it up but yeah you obviously want him rolling to give yourself the best chance uh so it is by the way it's noah dobson who leads the islanders in scoring right now the young defenseman with uh 12 points through 14 games so it's not often you see a defenseman leading a team in scoring and it's not often to be you don't see a a good capable playoff team have a forward that's at least a point a game high through this stage we're at that stage Right, well, gone are the days of Jamie Ben winning the Art Ross with 87 points at the end of the year. Right, there are a lot of guys that are over a point a game, and that's kind of where you need your top flight elite producers to be. Like, all due respect to Horvat with 11 and 13 games and Barzell with 10 and 14, but if those are your two most dynamic forwards and they're producing at that clip, you don't have a good offense. Barzell's career and local guy always a storyline when he comes back as well. But from 85 points in 82 games in his rookie year, 22 goals, and then as the league has gotten more and more high scoring, and as you say, it's become more and more common Mm -hmm. for guys to go over a point in a game, he hasn't hit that again in his career. And, you know, 51 and 58 last year, 59 and 73 the year before, I think for this version of the Islanders to have any hope of working and being a contending team. They needed him to at the very least stay at the level he was at as a rookie, yeah. if not continue to get better and be a consistent, you know, 80 to 90 point guy. And it just hasn't happened. And you, if he was a different player, if he had done that leveling up process, I think things look a lot different for the Islanders. right? Yeah. Now. I mean, it's been a real interesting <laughs> career arc for Barzell. Cause I think everyone understood that after a rookie year in which he produced, like he did, he was going to be on this trajectory yeah. to the moon that he was going to be the next great thing. He's up and coming star center. Right? And I think a lot of people saw him as being the next great playmaker. Cause he was not, a, he's not a sniper by trade, no. right? He's not a goal scorer by trade. He uh, career high at 22. And I think with that said, the style of play that the Islanders have deployed over the last four years, five years, more importantly, the lack of goal scorers that Lou Lamorello has surrounded Barzell with is almost borderline criminal. There's just not enough guys that can put the puck in the back of the net with regularity that can play 
both the speed and have the on-ice awareness to get to spots to make Barzell a weapon. It's almost like they wanted to try and turn him into something that would fit in that Barry Trotz era and that mm-hmm. Barry Trotz mold, which is fine. Everyone needs to round out their game. I don't need to speak on the cliches of the 200-foot player, but it just seems as though that there is a wasted talent in terms of playmaking because this team is still relying on the likes of Brock Nelson and Kyle Palmieri and Cal Clutterbuck and Casey Zekas to play significant minutes up front. These are all guys that are like 13, 14, 15 minutes a night yep. with regularity. And it's it's too bad because right now they're a, fr- they're a franchise that's going nowhere. Oh, no. Like, I don't know if you're an Islanders fan how you can be excited about what the next two or three years are going to bring. At best, you're scratching and clawing your way into the playoffs and then hoping you can make some noise. I say that knowing that we basically have been begging for that in Vancouver, some of us anyway, over the last little bit. But big picture, you've got to know that there's a real ceiling on a team that doesn't have a lot of elite talent. And it, it reminds me a little bit of like the Calgary Flames or something where if you're not, you've got all these guys under contract, but if you're not getting it done with them right now when they're in their primes, the future starts to look really, really bleak. And they do have, they have Noah Dobson, who's young and as you said, leading the team in scoring. But like there are other key players. I mean, you know, Pulak and Pelik are 29, Horvat's 20. Barzell's already 26, so you know he's not old by any stretch, but he's right in the thick of his prime, and a lot of the other guys are over 30, so if, if this version of the team isn't working, it's really hard to see how they're going to improve in the near future. I almost get, and it's not a totally fair comparison because I don't think it's going to be this bad of a fall-off, but I get kind of like San Jose Sharks vibes from three or four years ago. Those are where bad you, vibes. Where you could see the disaster coming right because of their contract status and the age of everyone. And I don't think anyone thought it was going to be like this necessarily for the sharks, but you can see that down the road for the Islanders. And I, I'm, it's going to take some work to avoid that. Okay. Quick reset here on the Halford and Bruff show. Again, that voice you're hearing is that of Jamie Dodd normally on Canucks talk, but he's filling in for the vacationing Jason Bruff today, Wednesday and Thursday, uh, eight o'clock hour. Brendan bachelor play by play voice of the Vancouver Canucks is going to join the show. We're also going to do what we learns in the back half of the eight o'clock hour. We will also take any of your comments, criticisms, vocal jeering of Bo Horvat, anything you want to weigh in on Boa Palooza as we get closer and closer to tomorrow's game. Uh, the Dunbar Lumber text line is 650-650. Hashtag it WWL. What did you learn over the last 24 hours in sports? Or if you want to weigh in on the Horvat thing, just have at it. A lot of different directions we can take the conversation in the final hour. Bo's legacy. Are you going to go to the game on Wednesday and you're going to cheer him? Are you going to boom how long will the video tribute be is there an appropriate amount of time befitting a former captain all of these questions we can answer them that's all coming up next on the halford and bruff show on sportsnet 650